Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have something that's been suggested by at least a couple of listeners, including William and Thomas, and that's the rock-hewn churches of Ethiopia. In particular, the complex of them that is known as Lalibela. There are at least 200 rock-hewn churches in Ethiopia. The oldest ones are in the Tigray region and are carved from sandstone. Those date all the way back to about the 5th century. This complex at Lalibela is a little newer. It was excavated from volcanic rock about 700 years ago, and the site has been in continuous use since then. Today, Lalibela is a deeply important religious site in Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity. So these churches are just an incredible feat of engineering, both in terms of the structures themselves and all of the water management that's involved with them. And they're also connected to the overall history of Christianity in Ethiopia, which evolved very differently from Christianity in the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. So today we will have a brief overview of the origins of Christianity in Ethiopia before talking about these rock churches at Lalibela from their original building to the threats that the site is facing today. Before we get to the introduction of Christianity in Ethiopia, the nations of Africa as we know them today have roots in the scramble for Africa that took place in the late 19th century. That is when European nations divided the continent up among themselves without regard for the existing nations, empires, and political alliances that were already there. This is something that has come up on the show multiple times before. Uh, the resulting national borders were really arbitrary in terms of everything from geography to existing territorial boundaries. These nations and their borders continued to evolve after the scramble for Africa, but in general, they also continued to group peoples that hadn't necessarily been affiliated before, creating the idea of nations that didn't necessarily match up to the existing political landscape. So, of course, that applies to Ethiopia. And then in terms of Ethiopia in particular, that name can mean a lot of different things, depending on when a person is talking about and when they were using that term. A lot of ancient writing from outside of sub-Saharan Africa uses the word Ethiopia in a generic kind of way to just mean Africa in general, or in particular, Africa south of Egypt. Ancient sources, including the Christian Bible, also use the word Ethiopian to describe anyone with very dark skin. So in these early uses of the word Ethiopia and Ethiopian, it's not always clear exactly who or where they are talking about. There are also a couple of written uses of the term that came from what's now Ethiopia rather than from elsewhere. They date back as far as the 3rd or 4th century. One of them references a king of the Aksumites and the Ethiopians. The Aksumite Empire was in what's now northern Ethiopia and Eritrea, and this wording suggests that people thought of these as two different places. And the history we're talking about today includes this same general region, which at some points has also been called Abyssinia. Christianity has been present in northern Africa since the earliest years of the religion as it spread through areas that were part of the Roman Empire. But in most of sub-Saharan Africa, it was introduced much later, starting with Portuguese missionaries in the 15th century. So for the most part, in sub-Saharan Africa, Christianity is associated with European colonialism. 
Ethiopia is an exception, though. Ethiopia's Christian traditions trace back to biblical accounts, including the flight of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus from Herod, the Roman king of Judea, shortly after Jesus was born. In the book of Matthew and in some of the New Testament Apocrypha, an angel appeared to Joseph and told him that Herod planned to kill Jesus, so the Holy Family fled to Egypt and lived there for several years. In the Ethiopian tradition, they continued into Ethiopia and they took refuge there. The book of Acts in the Bible also describes the apostle Philip baptizing a eunuch from the court of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, with that baptism happening in Jerusalem. In his fourth century ecclesiastical history, Bishop Asubius of Caesarea wrote that this person returned to Ethiopia, arriving there sometime before the Apostle Matthew did. But like we just talked about, it's not really clear exactly where Ethiopia is in these accounts. In terms of the introduction of Christianity as an established religion, that goes back to the days of the Aksumite Empire, also called the Kingdom of Aksum. This empire was established sometime between 150 BCE and 50 CE, and it flourished from the 3rd through the 6th centuries. Because of its position on the northern horn of Africa along the Red Sea, this empire had extensive trading relationships with what's now Sudan, Egypt, and the Arabian Peninsula. It was a wealthy, cosmopolitan kingdom with primary exports that included ivory and gold. The kingdom used the revenue from these exports to invest in agriculture, moving the region from subsistence farming to raising cattle and export crops. The foreign merchants who visited or worked in the Aksumite Empire included Christians, and at first, Christianity was viewed in the empire as a foreign religion rather than as something that Aksumites might practice for themselves. Multiple accounts document the same basic story about how that changed. And in that story, two men, described as coming from Syria or Tyre, were shipwrecked and given employment in the king's household. The king died while his son was still too young to take the throne, and these two men remained at court while his widow served as regent for the late king's son, Azana. Along the way, they made connections with Christian traders and merchants, although it's not clear whether these shipwreck survivors sought them out because they were already Christian themselves or if they converted to Christianity at some point. When Azana came of age, the younger of the two shipwreck survivors returned home. But the older, known as Frumentius of Tyre, traveled to Alexandria, Egypt, to petition church patriarch Athanasius to appoint a bishop to lead the growing community of Christians in the kingdom of Aksum. The patriarch appointed Frumentius himself, and in Ethiopia he became known as Abba Salama, or Father Peace. Abba Salama also baptized the king, marking the royal family's conversion to Christianity. In about the year 330, Azana became the first monarch to put the symbol of the cross on coins, and the capital of Aksum grew into a religious as well as a political center. So the establishment of Christianity in Ethiopia was happening at about the same time as it was in Armenia, which is usually noted as the first country to make Christianity the official state religion. It took another couple of centuries before Christianity was widely practiced outside of the royal family and nobility in the kingdom of Aksum. Much of that shift started with the introduction of monasticism in about the 6th century. This is traditionally described as being brought by nine saints who were refugees fleeing religious persecution in Syria. There are still monasteries in Ethiopia that are dedicated to or trace their origins back to one of these nine saints. These monastic communities were hugely influential in the conversion of the general public to Christianity. 
Although the Aksumite Empire had a robust trading network and relationships with other Christian nations, it was relatively isolated from other predominantly Christian parts of the world. Its primary contact was the Coptic Church in Egypt, which appointed Egyptian bishops to lead the church in Aksum. In about the 7th century, Muslim conquest of surrounding areas also cut off the kingdom's contact with most other Christian nations. So for centuries, the church in what's now Ethiopia didn't have formal contact with the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox churches as they evolved at all. Consequently, the Orthodox Christianity that developed in the Horn of Africa is unique with rituals and beliefs and practices that are specific to that region and sometimes have more in common with Judaism than with other Christianity. The Aksumite Empire went into decline around the 7th century, but by that point, Christianity was established enough among the population that it survived the end of the political dynasty. The historical record is a little bit fuzzy on the years that followed, but the next people documented as coming to power were Kushite-speaking Zagwe people in about the 11th century. They moved the capital south from Aksum to Roja. One was King Lalabella, which brings us to the rock-hewn church complex that is named for him. And we will get to that after a sponsor break. The complex of rock-hewn churches in Lalibela is named for and attributed to King Gabre Mescal Lalibela. Most sources spell his name and the name of the church complex the same way. But one of the sources that I used for this episode spelled the king's name as ending with B-A-L-A rather than B-E-L-A. Uh, and that author noted that it has some pronunciation nuances that aren't necessarily perceptible to people who aren't from Ethiopia. Uh, I have also heard reputable sources say this name in three totally different ways. If you go watch videos from the Smithsonian, UNESCO, and the World Monuments Fund, you will hear three different pronunciations. King Lalibela's biography and his connection to the church complex named after him are also really important and devoutly believed in the Ethiopian Orthodox religious tradition. We have a couple of pieces of documentation that help pinpoint the dates of King Lalibela's reign. Both are land grants that he issued to churches, the first in 1204 and the second in 1225. Most sources conclude that he ascended to the throne sometime toward the very end of the 12th century and that he ruled for at least a few years after 1225. Most of the information that we have about his biography comes from a 15th century work called Life of King Lalibela, which was written after he had already attained sainthood. So apart from the centuries that passed between when he lived and when this was written, it's not clear how much of his content is strictly factual and how much is more related to creating kind of an idealized portrayal of the life of a saint. According to Life of King Lalibela, when he was born, a swarm of bees circled around him, almost as though he was made from honey. His mother interpreted this as being like an army surrounding its leader, and she took it as a sign that one day he would become king. His name has also been translated to the bee recognized his sovereignty or the bee has seen his grace. Lalibela's brother, King Harbe, became jealous over this and later tried to poison Lalibela. This attempt to assassinate his brother failed, and a deacon and a dog were killed instead. Lalibela blamed himself for all of this and took the same poison. He fell unconscious for three days, and during that time, God gave him a vision of ten churches, hewn from solid rock, and commanded that he would build them. 
After recovering all of this poison incident, Lalabella fled to the desert, and there he married a woman named Kebra Mescal. Together, they went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and when they returned to Roja, they were escorted by the archangels Michael and Gabriel. King Harbe abdicated, and Lalibella took the throne. In addition to the religious vision that's described in this account, sometimes there's other reasoning folded into Lalibella's uh, excavation of this complex of churches. And that's that after the fall of Jerusalem to Saladin in 1187, it became impossible for Christians to undertake a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So King Lalibella wanted to make a new Jerusalem in Ethiopia. He wanted a new pilgrimage site that people could visit. They could go to each church as they might visit the sites in Jerusalem that were associated with Jesus. The traditional account of these churches' construction also has religious elements, that human workers excavated during the day, and then angels did three times that amount of work each night. For this reason, the religious community at Lalibela today regards the entire site as sacred, including any dust or rubble that might have been created during the excavation. This complex of churches at Lalibela is one of the things that's been nicknamed an unofficial eighth wonder of the world. The churches are monolithic. They are excavated from the surrounding volcanic rock in one contiguous piece— For most of them, the workers excavated from the top down, creating a huge trench around the perimeter that also included the exterior faces of the walls. And then another team excavated the interior ceilings and floors, hollowing out the insides. In some places, you can see how this was the work of multiple teams excavating simultaneously because occasionally the interior elements don't quite match up with the exterior. The resulting structures average about four stories tall, and they're situated in similarly deep excavated pits, with a system of underground tunnels and trenches connecting them to each other. Their upper portions of the structures have a reddish appearance thanks to the oxidized iron in the volcanic material that they were carved from, and the lower portions are gray basalt. There are also assorted other rooms and nooks carved into the rock all around these churches themselves, and evidence that at some point in the past there were also above-ground structures built from wood and stone. There are also remains of traditional village houses in the area that are still standing. Those were circular two-story houses with thatched roofs. And then aside from the churches, Lalibela is also a town with a population of about 20,000 people. As we mentioned at the top of the show, different sources group or describe the buildings in the Hune Lalibela complex slightly differently, but most of the time they are described as being in two clusters, separated by a seasonal torrent bed known as the River Jordan. Initially, all the structures were probably connected to the torrent bed by trenches or tunnels, but some of those have collapsed or fallen in over time. There's also one building that's separated off on its own rather than being in one of these two groups, but it's connected to the others by trenches. And that one is the House of St. George, which is probably the most well-known of the churches. When you look at this from above, it's shaped like a cross with nested crosses carved into the roof. The cross itself measures about 12 meters by 12 meters or 40 by 40 feet. To the north of the torrent bed are the House of the Savior of the World, the House of Mary, the House of the Cross, the House of Virgins, and the House of Golgotha Michael. To the south are the House of Emmanuel, the House of Mercurios, the House of Abbot Libanos, the House of Gabriel Raphael, and the House of Holy Bread. The House of the Savior of the World is a five-aisled basilica with a colonnade and is believed to be the largest monolithic church in the world. 
Each of these churches is unique. They vary in details from one to another. We have different window shapes, different structural elements and designs and artwork. And you can see multiple influences reflected in the various buildings. Before the Aksumite royal family converted to Christianity, royal burial sites were marked with these monolithic stone stelae that represented very tall, multi-story buildings. Some of these are still standing in Aksum, which is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And some of the windows and other design features at Lalibela are patterned after these carved obelisks. Ethiopia's historic churches also include more traditional above-ground structures, built from stone blocks and wooden beams. Many of them have the square ends of beams jutting out horizontally from the corners of the windows. They're locally nicknamed monkey heads. Some of the windows at Lalibela replicate the look of these beams as well. The House of Emmanuel, in particular, tries to replicate the look of a built wooden church. Even though these structures are hewn from solid stone as one piece, many of their interiors replicate structural elements that would hold up the ceiling and the roof in buildings that were made from another material, like stone blocks. So if you look up at the ceilings, you'll see things like pillars, which are a good idea anyway, but then archways up in the ceilings that would be structural elements in another context. The houses of Mary and Golgotha Mikhail were once completely plastered and painted on the inside, with the plaster covered with murals and other artwork. It's not totally clear how far back all of this artwork dates, and in a lot of places there's paint from artwork that is no longer visible. One of the most complete murals depicts Mary riding a mule, with Joseph walking by her side, led by the Archangel Gabriel as the Holy Family arrived in Egypt. Along with the sculptures, religious carvings, and other artwork, these buildings are also home to a collection of arcs. In the Ethiopian religious tradition, the Queen of Sheba, who was Ethiopian, had a son with the Israelite King Solomon. This son was Menelik I, and when he reached adulthood, his mother took him to visit his father. He returned to Ethiopia with the Ark of the Covenant, which remains hidden in a church in Aksum, guarded by one monk who is the only person allowed to see it. The churches at Lalibela contain replicas of this ark, which are decorated with stylized carvings and then treated with a similar amount of reverence. Some of the arcs are carved from a single piece of wood, and nine of them are dedicated to King Lalibela. Uh, with no disrespect intended, I can't stop thinking about Indiana Jones. Uh, the excavation of these buildings was an incredible feat of engineering. In addition to just the planning and labor, volcanic rock is not uniformly dense or stable. When artists and artisans are carving from stone, they're usually choosing a piece that's consistent and of the right quality for their purposes. But you just do not have that option when you're carving an entire building from the living rock. These artisans had to account for all kinds of variations in the structure and strength of the material to get the aesthetic look that they were seeking, as well as the stability to make sure everything remained standing. And on top of that, this work required a complex and massive hydro-engineering project. Lalibela is situated in the Ethiopian highlands about 2,630 meters above sea level. That's about 8,628 feet. There is no water at the surface of the site, so a whole system of canals, trenches, cisterns, sluice gates, dams, catch basins, and other devices was created to both bring water into the area from an aquifer that was miles away 
and to manage all the rain and runoff during the rainy season. This includes the creation of multiple pools that were used for drinking water, baptisms, and healing and cleansing rituals. This hydroengineering work is usually credited to someone named Abba Labanos, and one of the churches at Lalibela is named for him. Sometimes the house of Abba Labanos is described as the only church at Lalibela dedicated to a specifically Ethiopian saint, but there's also some debate about whether he was Ethiopian. He was definitely brought from somewhere to oversee this work, but it is not entirely clear if it was from within Ethiopia that he was brought or from without Ethiopia. Especially considering that they were built in the 13th century These churches are just extraordinary, and we will talk about what archaeological study has revealed about them and the threats that they're facing today after a sponsor break. The rock-hewn churches of Lalibela present some particular challenges when it comes to archaeological study. Because most of them were carved from the top down, that meant that most of the evidence of earlier phases of work was destroyed as that work progressed. A lot of what remains is found in spoil heaps that are all over the area. But because the spoil heaps weren't really planned as carefully as the buildings themselves, they don't necessarily represent a neatly chronological stratification with the oldest debris on the bottom and the newest on the top. These are also, remember, deeply holy sites in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and home to an active religious community that has been there continually for centuries. Some parts of the churches can only be entered by very specific monks. The idea that these buildings were excavated by angels and that the work was commanded by God is also part of this community's sincerely held religious belief. In some cases, this has meant that researchers have only been able to study the buildings from the outside. Restoration and conservation projects also have to account for the idea that even the debris may have been handled by angels. As we said earlier, in addition to the churches themselves, there are rooms and nooks and other elements that are hewn from the surrounding rock. But because naturally occurring basalt blocks can really resemble something that was carved by human hands, it can be hard to identify which features are hand-carved and which are not without further study. I mean, obviously, the entire churches are carved by hands, uh, but there are things like, that looks like a throne. Is this a thing that someone carved to look like a throne, or did the rock just form that way? It's also physically hard to get from one part of the complex to another. A lot of the tunnels that connect the different structures are roughly the height and width of a person. So there's not a lot of extra room to be moving around and hauling equipment that you might need for some kind of a dig. Uh, And my claustrophobia has just kicked in. Uh, Also, Lalibela... It's fairly remote. It's about 370 miles, that's 600 kilometers, north of the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. Until the late 1950s, it was only accessible by foot or mule. An airstrip opened up in 1960, but that only operated during the dry season. Ethiopian oral histories have been passed down, but there's virtually no written record of the site's construction, and only a very few written accounts by foreign visitors to the site before the 19th century. It was virtually unknown beyond the Horn of Africa until the mid-19th century and virtually unstudied by archaeologists until the 1960s. Two of the very sparse earlier accounts of Lalibela were written by Portuguese missionaries. Francisco Alvarez wrote of visiting a place called Lalibela in the 16th century after spending six years in Ethiopia. 
Portugal was hoping to form an alliance with the empire against Muslim nations. Alvarez's book was first published in 1540, but his description of what he saw is more about how it was so fantastic that no one would believe him than about what the site actually looked like at the time. For example, he wrote, quote, It seems to me that I shall not be believed if I write more. And because regarding what I have already written, they may blame me for untruth. Therefore, I swear by God in whose power I am that all that I have written is the truth. And there is much more than what I have written. And I have left it that they may not tax me with its being falsehood. A later edition of his book included some diagrams of the Rakhun churches, but there's no documentation of where they came from or who drew them, and they're also not particularly accurate. Even the name Lalibela wasn't consistently used until more recently. Most older Ethiopian references call the town Roja and the church complex Debra Roja. Archaeologists and other researchers have started to draw some different conclusions about Lalibela in more recent decades, though. It appears that the buildings were excavated over multiple phases, possibly starting as early as the 7th or 8th century and then stretching into the 13th century, so definitely overlapping with the reign of King Lalibela. Although all of the buildings are currently used as churches and other religious sites, and they have been for a very long time, at least some of them were probably originally built for other purposes. The House of Gabriel Raphael, for example, was probably initially used as a castle. There's also some speculation that King Lalibela's aims may have been as much about moving the capital from Aksum to Roja and solidifying a political dynasty as it was about creating a religious pilgrimage site. After King Lalibela died, he was reportedly entombed at Lalibela in the house of Golgotha Michael. About 50 years later, his successor was killed, and the dynasty that came to power from there traced its lineage back to Solomon and Menelik I. Much later, this was dubbed the Solomonic Restoration— the Solomonic emperors branded the previous Zagwe dynasty as usurpers, and that fed into debate about who should be credited with excavating the churches at Lalibela. This dynasty remained in power until 1974 with the deposition of Ethiopia's last emperor, Haile Selassie. Stay tuned for a Saturday classic about that for more information. After the Solomonic Restoration, Ethiopia continued to grow wealthier, especially through trade with Christian nations in Europe that didn't want to trade with Muslims or send their merchants through Muslim-controlled territory. Then in 1530 and 1531, Ahmad Gran conquered about three-fourths of Ethiopia and forced the people living in those areas to convert to Islam. The Solomonic dynasty retained control of some territory, though, and Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity survived. In the 17th century, Jesuit missionaries arrived in the remaining Christian regions of Ethiopia and began trying to convert the population to a more European style of Christianity. Walada Petros, who was the wife of one of the emperor's counselors, left her husband, became a nun, and led a successful resistance movement to retain traditional Ethiopian practices. The Life and Struggles of Our Mother, Waleta Petros, was written about 30 years after her death, and it is the earliest known book-length biography of an African woman. It documents both the resistance movement and her lifelong partnership with another nun. In the 19th century, King Theodorus II tried to reunify Ethiopia under a Christian monarch and did reclaim much of the previously conquered territory. He hoped to gain the sympathies of Britain as a Christian nation, but was ultimately defeated by a British expeditionary force and took his own life. 
Of course, Ethiopia has its own social and political history from there, but our focus today is really on Lalibela and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. For most of its history, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church had been headed by an Egyptian appointed from Alexandria. That changed in 1951 when Basilios became the first Ethiopian to be appointed by the church in Alexandria. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church, now called the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church, became fully independent in 1954. The Eritrean Orthodox Church became independent from the Ethiopian Church in 1993. Today, the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church is also the second largest Orthodox Church in the world, with roughly 50 million adherents. Ethiopia's monasteries were nationalized after the ouster of Haile Selassie in 1974, and at that point, they stopped being as economically powerful as they had been, but they continued to be a huge center of religious importance in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Today, Lalebela is still a deeply important religious and pilgrimage site, particularly on Christmas, which is celebrated on January 7th. As many as 60,000 pilgrims visit the site for the Christmas festival, which is known as Gena. The site gets between 80,000 and 100,000 visitors each year, many of them making that pilgrimage on foot. But this volume of visitors has contributed to ongoing issues with conservation at the site. These are massive monolithic structures that were excavated from the rock about 700 years ago and have been exposed to the elements since then. So naturally, they've been affected by weather, water, erosion, seismic activity, and even lichen and other plant life. The World Monuments Fund started some conservation work on the site in the 1960s, making it one of the World Monuments Fund's first projects. In the 1990s, temporary roofs were placed over some of the churches as an emergency measure to try to protect them from the sun and the seasonal rains. Lalebella was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1978, and in 2007, UNESCO and the WMF teamed up for additional conservation work, including the installation of more sophisticated shelters over some of the churches. Plans started for conservation work at the House of Gabriel Raphael in 2009. That's not one of the churches that's currently protected by a roof. Work started in 2012 and finished in 2015, and it included training local artisans and craftspeople to handle ongoing conservation work. A field school provided further training in 2016. It brought in students from New York's Columbia University and Ethiopia's Addis Ababa University. Additional funding was secured for repair work on two other churches that same year. In 2018, though, Ethiopians organized protests about ongoing issues at the site, including concerns about the quality of restoration work that had already been done. One of the issues is those temporary shelters that are protecting some of the churches. They really are not attractive. Locals have nicknamed them gas station roofs. Because the churches are made from solid stone with small windows, the roofs make their already dark interiors even darker. There's also some argument that the use of these roofs has protected the sites from rain and runoff, but the downside is that they're making the stone too dry. There are also concerns about what might happen if one of the roofs collapses onto the structure that it is supposed to be trying to protect. Yeah, clearly there's still a lot of work to be done. And in the words of UNESCO, quote, there is a need for stronger planning controls for the setting of the churches that address housing, land use tourism, and for a management plan to be developed that integrates the conservation action plan and addresses the overall sustainable development of the area with the involvement of the local population. It's hard to describe, 
how stunning these churches are in the context of an audio podcast. (laughs) This is always the trick with, like, art or architecture or particularly things like this that are almost, um, I mean, it it would be unheard of. If someone today said, I am going to carve a building from an existing rock, I think they would get a lot of shocked faces. Yeah. Uh, But... They did this over and over on this site. Yes. It is quite quite spectacular. They are. Uh, I have a little listener mail. Fantastic. This is from Lindsay. Lindsay writes, Hi, guys. Love the show. In particular, I've enjoyed learning about American history, which as an Australian was never part of my education and I felt was a void in my understanding of world history. Anyway, finally, I feel like I have something to contribute. I was fascinated to hear about the relationship between barbecues and politics in your recent episode. And this got me thinking about a recent phenomenon in Australia. A bit of background. Community groups in Australia make the most of any opportunity to hold a fundraising sausage sizzle, a budget affair where the cheapest sausages are barbecued, probably grilled, question mark, and served on a slice of white bread with tomato sauce, definitely not ketchup, with grilled onions optional. So come election day, the choice of which polling place to use can often be determined by which one is hosting the best sausage sizzle, Fun fact, voting is compulsory in Australia. So here's the hilarious part. The election day sausage in bread has become such a big deal that it has become known as a democracy sausage. And the most recent federal election, it was trending hashtag democracy sausage. I would encourage everyone in the U.S. to exercise their democratic right to vote next year and perhaps partake in a democracy sausage P.S. The term selfie is also widely accepted to have originated in Australia. So on behalf of Australia, you're welcome, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. I wanted to read this for two reasons. One is that the idea of democracy sausage cracks me up. Uh, And the other is that when I was working on the barbecue episode, which I did the research for, uh, it, it gradually narrowed down to being a specifically United States, North American story about the intersection between uh, indigenous cooking methods and introduced food and uh, the work of, at first, enslaved Black people and then later on um, freed people in in making this culinary tradition. But as I was starting out, it was much broader before it became clear that it needed to narrow down. And one of the things that I had in my notes is that there is a draft edition into the Oxford English Dictionary from 2015 that is the Australian slang barbecue stopper. And a barbecue stopper is a topic of a conversation that is so compelling or controversial that if you brought it up at a barbecue, everything would stop. And that cracked me up. Uh, And I was a little bummed that by narrowing down the focus, I didn't have a reason to include it in the episode anymore. So I'm including it today. Um, So thank you, Lindsay, for writing to us with that. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. Then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. This is typically when I would say that you can come to our website for show notes about the episode and a picture of some of these churches. But if you've been to our website recently, it has been changed significantly. We don't have a timeline for when those show notes are going to be visible again, but it is something we are actively working on. 
All that information still exists. It's just not currently visible on the website. So to see pictures of these churches, for now, go to the UNESCO website. They have so many. Uh, you can also subscribe to our show in Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.